tonight on The Readout. And if the Republicans decide that Jim Jordan should be the Speaker of the House, um, there will, and I, by the way, I don't think that's going to happen. I think he'll lose. But if they were to decide that, there would no longer be any possible way to argue that a group of elected Republicans could be counted on to defend the Constitution. Liz Cheney speaking the truth about the Republican leadership crisis, which an esteemed professor who joins me tonight says should be setting off alarm bells that democracy is in trouble. Even Trump is being talked about as a potential speaker. Plus, Trump's renewed push to delay, 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 including a heavy dose of whining about being unable to access all of the highly classified documents that he used to have stashed in his insecure bathroom at Mar-a-Lago. And we begin tonight with the power of eight. Eight Republicans, that is. The band of eight who rejected Kevin McCarthy going against hundreds of their fellow Republicans, all of whom voted to keep the speaker in place, which means eight people can take over an entire institution, pulling the plug on the House doing its job. There's been a lot of chaos this week, hand wringing and infighting, and it's a scene that we should be really worried about. Daniel Ziblatt, co-author of the new book, Tyranny of the Minority, told The Washington Post, quote, If you want to know what it looks like when democracy is in trouble, this is what it looks like. It should set off alarm bells that something is not right. Ziblatt is a professor of government at Harvard, so he knows a thing or two about what this work entails. Emphasis on the word work. This is work. They don't call it public service for nothing. But voters keep electing people who cannot do the job, which is weird, right? Because these are the people elected to make crucial decisions about Healthcare, your child's education, food safety, roads, bridges, and jobs. It's nose to the grindstone work. Not everyone is built for it. Many people have hired or chosen people to do far less. Think about it. Would you trust this person to run a small business in your neighborhood? Criminals are going to be criminals. If somebody wants to take you out and doesn't mind losing their life, there's not a whole heck of a lot you can do about it. Would you trust this person to watch your kids? He's the one who is robbing hardworking Americans to pay for Karen's daughter's degree in lesbian dance theory. Would you even talk to this person about the weather? With due respect, sir, the farmers in my district recognize climate change as summer, winter, spring and fall. What about letting these people make rules and set the budget for you and your family? Now we have Nancy Pelosi's gazpacho police spying on members of Congress. Be honest, you wouldn't hire any of these people to work for your business. Do anything for your family, in your house, rummaging through your paperwork or anywhere near your kids. Because that would be a horrible idea. Unproductive, risky, even dangerous. So why are so many American voters hiring this quality of person to manage the $6 trillion budget of the largest economy in the world? Why is one of the richest, most complex and highly advanced market economies on earth in the hands of painfully underqualified, unserious people. All spending must emerge 
from the U.S. House of Representatives per the Constitution, which is why the House, the House is the one with the power to shut down the government by not agreeing to a budget. No one else in the government can do this job. But the Republican Party has a hiring problem because the folks who work for them do not understand that this is a job. To them, this is just fun. It's a television show. It's entertainment. It's being famous. But it's actually none of that. It's funding the Pentagon. It's managing the finances of the elderly and making sure that they can pick up their medicine. It's ensuring public school kids get their breakfast and lunch at school. So to put this job in the hands of what is essentially a clown car of chaos agents feels like an American suicide. Even worse, a suicide that you get to watch on TV. Because that is what really matters to these people. Lights, camera, spectacle which may explain why Donald Trump is considering a visit to the U.S. Capitol early next week, as House Republicans consider who should be their next speaker. Trump is ineligible for the post under the party's own rules, barring anyone under indictment. But that hasn't sunk in with the party, which could also just change the rules. Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted today, quote, if Trump becomes Speaker of the House, the House chamber will be like a Trump rally every day. It would be the House of MAGA. AKA America would descend into a pit of chaos so deep it would take a century to repair. While revealing that it really is just a party for them, just a party, a circus, a rally. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer replied to Taylor Greene, quote, no thanks, we're good. We've seen a Trump rally at the Capitol already. Touche. And that rally that we saw on January 6, 2021, wasn't just entertainment for the bored, angry, and unserious American far right. It was an attempted coup. Joining me now is Tom Nichols, staff writer for The Atlantic, and Daniel Ziblatt, the professor I mentioned a moment ago. He is the co-author of the new book, Tyranny of the Minority. Um, thank you for being here, uh, both of you. I do want to go to you first, Professor Ziblatt, because it, it, it strikes me that the era we're in is both frightening and actually sort of comically unserious. You know, I, I spoke with a, 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 a gentleman yesterday on the show who used to work for Paul Ryan and, and, and John Boehner. I wasn't a fan of either of them, but that they didn't come across as completely unserious human beings. This new batch of MAGA Republicans are both power mad. They want to run the country, but they want to run the country for no purpose. They just want to be in the front and be on TV. And I can't see anything else they want other than for, I don't know, to zero out programs for the poor. What are we facing and how am, am I? Am, talk me down if I'm if I'm too, too freaked out. Well, one way of interpreting what's going on is that it's a really close, closely close balance in the Congress um, between Republicans and Democrats. But we have to remember that Nancy Pelosi, with even a narrower uh, majority, was able to hold her coalition together. And so the only way to explain what's happening now with the Republican Party is its extreme radicalization. You know, so the left and the Democratic Party knows how to play ball, knows how to get politics done. The extreme right of the Republican Party doesn't. And so what we're really seeing is the, the, the consequences of the radicalization of the Republican Party. And that, yes, sorry, Joy, but it should frighten us. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's where I'm going to kind of end, end my answer to you. And, you know, and Tom, I, you wrote a really great article recently. And then, I mean, it's partly, it's, un oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt it's, you. Go ahead. Less, less humor in it than you do, I guess. That's, that's my, that's, that's what I would have to say. No, I, I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. I mean, uh, Tom, your, your recent piece pointed out, I mean, part of it, I think, is that people don't really know what the government does, right? So at a certain point, folks are just sort of entertaining themselves to death. 
don't know what the government does. They're like, this person's more entertaining than that one. So I think Trump is funny. I'd rather have him than boring Joe Biden. But Biden's old. Trump is hilarious to me. And so it's like not really understanding what the job is. But in the sense of the Congress, I mean, this is a six trillion dollar economy. These people are in charge of divvying out the money. And, and they don't come in with any set of ideas that they're pushing that even if I disagree with them, at least they'd be ideas. They literally, they're like, fun, defunding Ukraine is our, is our, our line we're going to draw on the sand. That's like 0.1% of the budget. That's not causing our debt. And they don't, and I don't think ordinary people know that. So they think, well, yeah, that must be the thing that's putting us in debt. It's not. I don't know if it's a communications problem in the part of the media that we can't explain it well. Talk me down as well. I mean, or don't talk me down. What do we do about this? The, the Republican Party has half of the Congress, and they are that. I, I can't talk you down. I mean, when it comes to foreign aid, for example, most people in this country think that foreign aid is between 25 and 15 percent of the budget. They'd like to see it reduced to about 10 percent, not realizing that it's, you know, 1 percent. Um, I think your point, though, about how people don't understand what government does is really important because they don't connect the clown show in Washington to any potential harm to themselves. They feel very insulated from it all. Um, and they don't understand that when things start to break down, it will be like what Ernest Hemingway said about going bankrupt. It'll be gradually and then all at once. And so they don't understand what it's like to have highways that are no longer maintained or um, checks that are no longer deposited to their accounts or air traffic control systems that no longer fund. They just don't get any of that because responsible adults have always stepped in to fix the chaos behind people like this. There's a small percentage of people in elected government, policymakers, experts, administrators, they keep the government functioning every day. And so people don't think there's any real danger to themselves. And the people who are running this um, carnival, um, they're insulated from this by money and power and privilege. Yeah. And they're not worried about what will happen if things go south. And Donald, Donald Trump doesn't. Donald Trump just wants to, stay, wants to stay out of jail. He doesn't care about whether or not the mail gets delivered. And so, you know, you really I think the word that we've all been using here is unseriousness. The problem is, and, you know, I, I take Professor Ziblatt's point about it, it's it's not funny, but it's almost if you don't laugh, you'll scream. Um, yeah. But this unseriousness is paves the way to authoritarianism. It really is the road to hell because people they're not even committed enough to some idea that is anti-democrat. They're not committed to anything. And so they kind of find themselves along this road um, without really knowing how or why they got there while everything falls apart around them. And that, then they'll blame everyone else for that. And, and that will just confirm their belief that democracy doesn't work. Right. And, and, you know, and there's sort of frog in a boiling pot piece to it, uh, Daniel Ziblatt, because, you know, I, I was kind of getting obsessed today. There's a big Washington Post story that talks about the fact that you literally have a longer lifespan if you live in a blue state versus a red state you or blue county versus a red county and how red state politics, there's like a frog in a boiling pot, right? So people who, you, who live in Ohio used to have a similar life expectancy to people who live in California. No more. California is like the second longest life expectancy. Ohio's is, is muddling near the bottom. Why? Because the policies that rich people in Ohio put in place that are great for them, deregulation, you know, no, no, don't worry about the seatbelt rules. You don't have to have that. We don't have to worry about like water pollution, which 
go ahead and keep polluting. That's great for rich people, but people in Ohio are actually dying younger, right? I mean, uh, people who live in nearby counties in Pennsylvania literally live longer because of policy. The bureaucrats, people call the deep state, are running the state, as Tom just said. And in the cases of places like Mississippi and Ohio and Alabama, the policies that people who make money and don't care about regular people, those policies are killing people. The U.S. is the only modern country that has a, a, what, eight-year gap between the life expectancy of people with college degrees and people without. That's not true anywhere else but here. And so what you have is people who then are angry about not being able to pay their rent and angry about not being able to make a living or dying young or their kid died at 30, you know, from a car accident because no seatbelts. Then they also get driven to the authoritarian, to the autocrat. They think the answer is the entertainment spectacle of a Donald Trump, who this week said the following. These are just some of his speeches. He labeled the New York attorney general a racist and a monster trying to gin up white rage, mocked Paul Pelosi after he was brutally assaulted by a home intruder, called for police to shoot shoplifters on site and said migrants, this is a new one, illegally crossing into the U.S. are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. Daniel Ziblatt, that's Nazi talk. And people are applauding it and cheering it. Yeah, so it's really it's really simple to be a uh, politician committed to democracy. You can't engage in that kind of rhetoric. I mean, it's a cardinal rule of democracy. You can't use threats of violence to try to gain power. And to your first set of points, it's really clear that overwhelming majorities of Americans want gun control. Overwhelming majorities of Americans uh, want uh, to deal with the climate crisis. And presumably, overwhelming majorities of Americans want to live longer. The reason we don't have the policies in place to do this is because our institutions allow for small minorities to dominate our politics. We've seen this in the House of Representatives. We also see this across our political system with the Electoral College, the Senate, a whole range of the filibuster, a whole range of institutions prevent uh, majorities from getting what they want. And what this means is that Americans become increasingly frustrated and disillusioned from our politics. And this is ultimately very dangerous for democracy. And then what do we do about it, uh, Tom? Because you have, it's a vicious cycle. The worse it gets, the more people double down on wanting this sort of populist Trumpian politics, which literally all it accomplished during Trump's era was a trillion dollar tax cut for the super rich. And everyone in their mind thinks they got something else. No, lots of rhetoric and anger and rage and hate, but not a lot else. But people are willing to just take that or the entertainment of a Marjorie Green or a Lauren Boebert. They don't mind the humiliation of it. They just think it's kind of funny. And, and I don't know what you do if a substantial share of Americans are OK with that and satisfied with that and are just going to sleepwalk us into an autocracy because of it. Well, you asked me to talk you off the ledge and then you asked me a question like that where I, I just can't talk you off the ledge because I don't think there is anything you can do about it, especially because so many of the people who support this authoritarian movement are older people. Um, and yeah. I say older, I mean, people, you know, my age in their in their 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, they're not going to change. They're not going to change their mind. They are they are way too far up that tree ever to climb down. Um, so some of this, uh, there was a piece in The Atlantic recently by someone who had been in a cult who pointed out and said, 
um, you know, cults eventually die out because this older generation of people just won't be replaced because the kids are another way of saying the kids are all right, that, you know, the, yeah. the generations coming behind them um, are more sensible. But the question is, can we hold on to this democracy through that really dangerous period? And I think um, the most important thing is not to become fatalistic about things like voting and about activism and about communicating with your elected representatives. Because I think one of the things that the far right counts on is that this minority, because it is so vocal and active, can exercise disproportionate power um, when, in fact, they are the minority in this country and yeah. they know it. By the way, that's where their anger comes from. They are a minority and they know they're a minority. So I guess, you know, the best um, answer I can give you is to say that you, you have to keep the faith. You can't you can't become fatalistic about losing to these folks because the Constitution yeah. and our democracy depend on it. Well said. Well said. Uh, I'm still on the ledge, but at least I'm on here with smart people. <laughs> I like being around smart people. We'll just all be on the ledge together. Uh, Tom Nichols and Daniel Ziblatt, thank you both very much. I really appreciated that conversation. Up next on the readout, Trump's lawyers are certainly earning the pay they probably won't get from him because it doesn't pay anyone. With a series of new developments today in the multitude of cases against the disgraced, twice impeached, repeatedly indicted former president. The readout continues after this. If there's one thing about Donald Trump that cannot be disputed, it is that he never behaves in a way that could be called presidential. But that hasn't stopped him from attempting to use the presidency as his get-out-of-jail-free card. Today, Trump filed a motion to dismiss the federal election interference case against him, claiming that he is protected by presidential immunity. In some alternative universe, his lawyers are trying to claim that his efforts to overturn his 2020 election loss to stay in power were, quote, at the heart of his official responsibilities as president. Meanwhile, he's behaving in literally the most unpresidential way possible in his New York civil fraud trial, continuing to level his baseless and dangerous attacks against the judge and the state attorney general. In fact, he's been screaming about everyone involved in all of his cases, with the exception of one, Judge Aileen Cannon, the judge he nominated while president, who is now overseeing the classified documents trial in Florida. That trial is scheduled to begin in May of next year. But in a new filing from Trump's legal team, they are pushing her to delay that trial until at least mid-November, a.k.a. after the election, over claims that they have not been given access yet to all the evidence they were promised. If you can believe it, they're up in arms about not being able to access a number of the documents that are deemed so highly classified that there isn't even a secure enough facility to view them in in the Miami area. Mind you, these are the same alleged documents that Trump had at one point stored next to a toilet in Mar-a-Lago. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Um, uh, where to begin? Uh, Barbara, let's start with the I have, uh, I have immunity clause, uh, um, defense. Donald Trump is trying to claim that trying to overturn the election was part of his official duties as president. Any chance that has any shot? No, I think none whatsoever, <laughs> Joy. Um, you know, this is one we probably could have anticipated was coming, uh, making out some sort of constitutional claim that the president was acting at the time within his, his duties and is therefore immune from criminal prosecution. And that is true. If someone is simply doing his job as president, he is immune from criminal charges. 
But as the judge found in those cases where the defendants were seeking to remove from state to federal court, like Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, and Jeffrey Clark, who was a DOJ official, what the judge found there is what I expect the judge will find here. And that is they were not governing, they were campaigning. And those are two very different things. The Supreme Court has said that when you look at whether a president has immunity, you should look at the outer periphery of his official duties. But this is so far beyond the official duties as not to be a question. He was not governing at the time. The president has no duties in the administration of state elections. And for that reason, I think all of this activity is well beyond the scope of his official duties as president. And therefore, I think this motion will fail. Uh, it does seem like most of what Trump does and the thing, you know, the, the filings are just designed to delay, right, to put up some specious argument that then has to be litigated then they appeal it. And it does seem like this is just buying time. Um, the one place where this seems like it, that could work is obviously in, in Florida, because Aileen Cannon seems to be a, a, a pro-Trump judge, at least her past history suggests she might be. This attempt to push the trial till after the election because they can't get their hands on enough of the evidence. Your, your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, this would be a really interesting test, I think, for Aileen Cannon. I, I think that, you know, she um, appropriately caused some to doubt her impartiality when she ruled the way she did on allowing Donald Trump to challenge the search warrants at Mar-a-Lago before any criminal charges were brought. Um, but I don't love this idea of there are Trump judges and Obama judges and Biden judges. I like to think that judges work hard to apply the law fairly and evenly. And so here, um, you know, I think they have to make out a case why this case can't go in March, very specifically based on what they want to access, why they can't access it, how much time they really need, um, and be very particularized in a finding. To simply blanketly say, okay, after the election, that's, that's good enough, I, I think is not the kind of rigor we would expect a judge to apply to a decision like this. Um, I think if there's a specific reason it needs to be extended for 30 days, 60 days, then perhaps she should extend it by that amount. But I don't know that they've made the case, at least not yet, that it needs to be extended past the election. Uh, let's let's go back to, to Georgia. So many cases. We have to just go around the country. Let's go to Georgia now. Um, so Donald Trump um, has. Oh, wait, uh, actually, one more before I get to that. Donald Trump has another argument uh, that he wants to try to have his case dismissed. And I guess this must be the Fulton County case saying he cannot be tried, probably not be prosecuted unless he's first been impeached and convicted in the Senate. His Senate acquittal following his second impeachment, according to his lawyers, prevents federal prosecutors—I guess this would be the Jack Smith case—from bringing any criminal charges. That seems insane to me, especially since Mitch McConnell, who is, you know, the Senate minority leader, said in a speech on the Senate floor after he was uh, acquitted in the January 6th impeachment, he could be prosecuted. But your thoughts? Yeah, this if the, if if the immunity motion has a zero percent chance of uh, of prevailing, this has a less than zero percent chance of prevailing. <laughs> uh, that was a congressional decision. It was made by members of Congress. It was not a criminal case. It was an impeachment proceeding. The remedy there is removal from office and possibly banning someone from seeking office in the future. This is completely different. This is an executive branch decision. This is uh, the power that belongs to the prosecution to have discretion of whether to file cases. There's nothing about this that creates a double jeopardy scenario. And so this has a less than zero percent chance of prevailing. 
Uh, now let's go to Georgia. Kenny, uh, Kenneth Cheeseborough and City Powell, they're trying to get their, their charges dismissed. His attorneys have asked the judge to dismiss because they claim the lead special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, did not file his sworn oath of office necessary to become an authorized public officer until recently. It, it, there's some strange stuff going on here. They want their cases thrown out. <laughs> Uh, Rudy Giuliani is suing Joe Biden. I, 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 I just I don't have enough time to get to all of it. But let's just really quickly go to that. Can they get their cases thrown out based on something they, they say the prosecutor did wrong? Not on this basis. What, what, what they're saying is that they failed to investigate alternative theories that could prove their innocence. Uh, the, gov <laughs> the government is required to produce exculpatory information. If they have information in their possession that tends to show that the person is not guilty or even goes to sentencing, they have an affirmative obligation to turn that over. But they don't have an obligation to chase down any cockamamie theory that might exist. The defense <laughs> can do that. Uh, but that is not a basis for dismissing a case. Okay, so let's go quick. Let's just put up really quickly. These are some of the people who will be testifying in these cases. Those cases start October 23rd. The two that stand out are obviously Lynn Wood. Um, uh, well, Lynn Wood is probably the one that really kind of stands out. Boris Epstein would stand out. So that's going to happen. Uh, we don't even have to comment on that. Just so that you all know, that's what we're going to be talking about when that uh, case starts. Let's also talk about Rudy Giuliani. He's lost his local attorneys. Um, so a second lawyer has left the case. Um, so we'll put up the names. He had David Wolf. He had Brian Tevis. They're both gone. He's got one more, John Esposito. This is a problem, right? This guy doesn't have a lot of money left. Um, even though he claims he has enough money to sue, uh, sue the president of the United States. What happens if he just runs out of cash? Does he end up with a public defender? Is this something that could happen? Yes, if he truly runs out of cash. But before he does that, he would have to submit a financial affidavit showing his assets. You know, so there's been reports that he's got a six million dollar apartment that he put up for sale in Manhattan. If so, well, where are the proceeds of that? That needs to be used to pay his legal fees before taxpayer funds get used for legal fees. So, you know, there are uh, other assets to be explored. How much does he have in bank accounts? How much income does he have? A judge would actually examine that first before deciding whether to appoint uh, counsel uh, that is typically given to people who are indigent or otherwise low income and can't afford it. But I think we're a long way there from Rudy Giuliani demonstrating that he yeah. truly lacks the assets to deserve court-appointed taxpayer-paid counsel. But even if he runs out of lawyers and there's no lawyer willing to represent him, what happens then? <laughs> um, that is not a basis for appointing court-appointed counsel. Um, if he can afford a lawyer, he needs to hire a lawyer. Um, you got to find and, one. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's his job to find one. Get out there and get in the phone book. Remember the phone book back in the day? I, I do. Uh, there's, always somebody, there's always somebody, Joy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Barbara Quay. We appreciate you. Uh, we're just, and still ahead. Uh, Elon Musk steps up efforts to turn Twitter or X or whatever you call it now into a bottomless pit of conspiracy theories, bigotry, misogyny, and hate with a new move targeting legitimate news sites. More on that straight ahead. You might not care about Twitter or X or whatever Elon Musk calls it these days, but you should care that a man who parrots anti-Semites and transphobes is actively promoting people like Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and Tucker Carlson. As one of the world's richest oligarchs, Elon Musk controls a major social media platform and has turned it into a giant megaphone for xenophobic, racist, misogynistic, and anti-Semitic trolls. He has reinstated noted Nazis, white supremacists, sex traffickers, and white supremacists. Did I mention that already? Some of whom he has personally engaged with and amplified. In fact, 
His willingness to engage with the most extreme voices on his platform is so toxic that he falsely accused a 22-year-old Jewish man of participating in a neo-Nazi brawl. The man was doxxed and his life was threatened. He's currently suing Elon Musk. Musk hired former NBC Universal executive Linda Yaccarino as CEO to give his company the patina of credibility. However, under their joint leadership, the company has seen a 50% plunge in advertising, which was Twitter's main source of revenue. Its value has also nosedived. According to Reuters, Musk bought the company for $44 billion. It's now worth $8 billion. Instead of confronting reality, he's trotted out the age-old right-wing strategy of blaming the Jews, especially the Anti-Defamation League, which he threatened to sue. I would note that there is a long history of far-right groups attacking the ADL for its alleged smears. You wonder why Musk would intentionally tank one of his toys? Well, our brilliant NBC colleague Ben Collins did some digging and discovered a possible explanation, which is tied to Musk's overt anti-Semitism and a plan promoted by a former Trump speechwriter who was fired for his affiliation with white nationalists. And joining me now is Ben Collins, NBC News senior reporter. All right, Ben, give us the explanation. Why did Musk destroy Twitter? So there are a lot of reasons he destroyed Twitter, uh, but the way in which he did it might be tied to this guy named Darren Beatty. Uh, Darren Beatty is a former Trump speechwriter. Like you said, he used to write speeches for guys like Stephen Miller in the Trump White House. But he was fired for speaking at a conference alongside a white nationalist who runs a website called VDare. And uh, a blog that said, basically, here is the game plan, the war plan, is what he calls it, within uh, this story for taking down Twitter. Um, and here's what you do if you were to do that, Elon Musk. Uh, first of all, you would blame all, all the users for all the problems on the platform, blame all the, what, they, what he called the blue checks, the old, you know, blame all the journalists for it. Uh, then once people start to flee, uh, once you let on all the, what he calls right-wingers, but really the far right back in the platform, blame the ADL. Now, uh, the interesting part about this is that this was texted to him, this game plan, 10 days before Elon bought the website. Um, it, this is in a series of texts that were um, revealed in a lawsuit from when Twitter tried to force Elon to go through the purchase of the site. So we're sort of at that endpoint now. Pretty much everything that happens within uh, that text, and within um, that battle plan, which he says would amount to the declaration of war against the globalist American empire, by the way, uh, all of that stuff has already happened. Now we're sort of at the end of that article. What he does to try and, to rebuild this thing has no value at this point, really, uh, is sort of uh, anybody's guess. Right, because the thing is, you know, I read your piece, which was great. It, it's just that my question that I was left with is, to what end? Is the idea to destroy Twitter and turn it into Parler or, you know, Getter, which I always think is the funniest name for a website, um, and make it just non-functional and have it just go away and blow his $44 billion, Or is it to turn it into something that stays popular but is genuflecting far-right ideals. Right. I mean, it has sort of turned into the Elon fan club, which when, you know, you can give him eight bucks and get a couple extra features for it. Um, unfortunately, for him, I don't think it's as popular as he would think. Um, he also now has plans to turn it into what he calls the like an everything app, sort of like uh, in China, they have apps where you can do your banking and you can talk to your friends and do all this <laughs> stuff. It's like a super Obviously, I don't know how many people would be you know, comfortable giving their credit card to Elon Musk at this point. Uh, maybe if he did this before all the anti-Semitism stuff, maybe. But now it's now it's I don't know what the plan is at this point. Maybe there was a better plan for transforming into something else earlier. 
But now it's yeah. just in gambles, which was sort of the point of that game plan from the beginning. A bank for neo-Nazis. That'll be fun. Um, it, one of the things that's interesting is it, uh, this piece in the New York in, in, uh, that, that really talked about Musk's own sort of psychology in his family. And this is what it said. Um, his grandfather was a pro-apartheid, anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist who blamed much of what bothered him about the world on Jewish financiers. Musk has said that he bought Twitter uh, to halt the advance of, quote, woke mind virus spreading online. His grandfather wrote his tracts to raise an alarm about what he called mind control on the radio and television, where, quote, an unconditional propaganda warfare is carried on against the white man. Is there any reporting that suggests that Musk himself is on some sort of crusade that is personal. I mean, he did go down to the border with a backwards cowboy hat on. Like, is, is, is there a personal crusade here for him? Or is it just he took this guy's advice and ran with it because he doesn't know any better? Yeah, there is uh, one of his literally, I, I'm not saying this is a joke, one of his literally untold number of children is trans. And he has publicly uh, blamed the school system or like some nefarious nebulous plot, you know, the, the universe for this happening to their child, his, his child will not talk to him anymore, by the way. Um, and that deeply affected him. Like you could see at the very start of those same text messages that were revealed in that lawsuit, he really, uh, he does, he cannot come to grips with this. And he really wants to get on the board of Twitter at the start, at the very least, so he can change the policy that allows him to be mean to trans people on the internet. That's, quite, that's literally what it's about. Um, there, was, there was a group called the Babylon Bee. It's like the onion for the, for the far right. And, you know, they they posted an article that was transphobic and they got banned for it. And he wanted them back on the platform. That's a big part of why he initially bought a little bit of the of uh, the platform back. So, look, uh, it's all it's all part and parcel of a bigger thing, right? He's upset about this culture that he cannot grasp, he cannot sort of uh, put back into a box. Um, he thought this would allow him to sort of take over the pipeline of the news. And frankly, I think he did a little bit. I think, you know, we've done a pretty bad job covering this guy as the news because he yeah. has a, the spectacle of Elon became the news story instead of the fact that this guy who has a lot of problems uh, took over this thing uh, with some very spooky and sketchy <laughs> ideology. Yeah. And, and also now wants to get involved in our politics. Currently, he's wanting to back RFK Jr. There's lots of lots of stuff to talk about. We'll have you come back on and scare us some more. Scaring is caring is what we say on the show. Ben Collins, we appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. Great reporting. And up next, I'll be joined by Nikki Grimes, author of numerous books for children and young adults about her ongoing efforts to fight back against book bans. We'll be right back. As a record number of record numbers of book bans have swept the nation, some states have been fighting back. In June, Illinois became the first state to ban book bans. Similar legislation has been introduced in New Jersey. And last month, California enacted a law preventing school boards from banning books based on racial or LGBTQ topics. According to PEN America, across the country, school book bans increased by 33 percent in the last school year of the more than 3,300 book bans. More than two-thirds came from just eight states, Missouri, Utah, Virginia, Tennessee, Georgia, Oklahoma, and West Virginia, and of course, Florida. In fact, more than 40% of all book bans nationally occurred in districts in Florida. PEN America plans to open a center in Florida before the end of the year to fight back. 
24 blockbuster authors have lent their support to help accelerate the effort. Among them is Nikki Grimes, best-selling poet and author of books for children and young adults and a member of the Black Authors Hall of Fame. Uh, and Nikki Grimes joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor. Um, l- let's talk about the, the Penn Miami Florida Center. Um, I know $3 million have been raised for it. What will it do? Well, it will allow them to mobilize uh, people on the ground. They'll be able to connect with other organizations involved in this work. Um, because while there's a there are so many book bans coming out of Florida, the truth of the matter is the majority are opposed to these bans. And so by being in the lion's den, as it were, Penn will have an opportunity to help mobilize those on the ground who aren't uh, aware of exactly how to go about fighting these bans. Well, let me just put up a map. And this is sort of where school book bans have happened by state. And of course, the darkest red is where the most book bans have happened. That is, of course, Florida. Texas is not far behind. It has been a red state phenomenon. But what have you made of the blue state pushback? Because you are seeing states like Illinois, New Jersey and California push back. Are we moving to two Americas when it comes to children's right to read, just as we are moving to two Americas when it comes to women's rights over their own bodies? I certainly don't hope so. I mean, that's what it looks like at this point. Uh, But that's why it's an all hands on deck kind of situation right now, where across the country, we need to be fighting back to to put a stop. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. I apologize for that. I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, let me just put up a note of the most banned books, because we know Toni Morrison always appears on this list. Another book, Gender Queer, appears a lot, a lot, a lot. And it is notable that most of the books that are banned have to do with either race or gender. And LGBTQ books are really starting to pick up steam as the thing most banned. What do you make of these people's fear of children reading, you know, your books have been banned as well. A Texas lawmaker taught you put your book among 850 books, um, which is your memoir, Ordinary Hazards, targeted in Texas because they said these books might make students feel uneasy. I thought just being a kid makes kids feel uneasy. But go your your thoughts. (laughs) I don't know, especially disturbing to me are the number of memoir that are on these lists. So what what is the message here? We're going to disallow the true life stories of authors to what end? I mean, uh, we write these books uh, in order to help readers understand that they are not all alone in the world. Uh, in order to plant seeds of empathy and compassion. And the books are having that kind of effect. And so we want to continue to to be able to do that. I get letters from from readers all the time. One who wrote from uh, Holland, Pennsylvania, thanking me for Bronx Masquerade, which taught him that no matter how we, even though we look different on the outside, we're all pretty much the same on the inside. Isn't that a lesson we want all readers to learn across the country, no matter what color they are? It's just preposterous that these books are being removed from the shelves where they belong, school, library, public library shelves, and not only removed from young readers, but they're being removed, period. So that means adults don't have access to them either. Uh, all hands on deck, as I said, across the country. 
You're absolutely right. I mean, the, the presumption that these book banners are making is that reading books about LGBTQ people will make the kids LGBTQ rather than the reverse, which is that LGBTQ kids read the books and feel like they're not alone, right? I mean, they're already LGBTQ. It's not the book that did it, you know, but they have this fear that reading about not, race will make white kids sad. Too. Go ahead. And if and if they're not LGBTQ and they read these books, then they have an opportunity to develop empathy. Yes. Something sorely lacking in our society these days. And so You're absolutely they in a sense they need the books even more. You're absolutely right. Yeah, because empathy is, is definitely short there. I'm going to put up your books specifically that have been banned and pulled um, four times between 2021 and 2023 in Florida and Texas. Uh, the books are Make Way for, da for, for Damond Daniel and Ordinary Hazards, which is, of course, your memoir. And also pulled from the curriculum was the book you just mentioned, Bla Bronx Masquerade. Why did you become a writer? Oh, my gosh. Because when I was young, I needed these books. I didn't plan actually uh, to be a children's author, as a matter of fact. I planned to write the great American novel, but I did have a story or two for young readers. And once I got started, I just kept going because I kept having another idea and another idea. And it became so satisfying for me to be able to help readers like I was to find themselves, to see themselves in the pages of a book and to find out about worlds other than their own, to have an opportunity to, as I said, develop compassion and empathy and come together. And yeah, how could I not want to do that? I've had teachers tell me that Bronx Masquerade in particular has changed the culture of their classroom, has allowed yeah. their students from different backgrounds to come together in a way that they hadn't before. And so hold classes, whole schools are reading these books and asking for more. These are not yeah. books that you want to pull off of the shelves. Quite Amen the to that. Well, thank you for all that you do. You've helped so many young people and uh, we are going to fight for the right to read. We believe in that very much on this show. We are, we are readers on this show. So I appreciate you. It's been such an honor to talk with you, Nikki Grimes. Thank you very much for all that you do. Thank you. Thank and you, Penn, for all you do. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And for more information about Penn America's Florida Center, you can visit penn.org slash stand with the band. Love that. Um, we'll be right back. Fun. Before we go tonight, I will be joining Chris Hayes in Philadelphia on Monday, October 16th for a live episode of his podcast. Why is this happening? For more information and to buy tickets, scan the, the code on the bottom of your screen. And that is tonight's readout.